If you don't know me, uh, my name is AJ. I have the privilege of serving on staff here at Praise Fellowship. And we are going to be poking around the book of Nehemiah this morning. If you don't know where Nehemiah is in your Bible, it's in the Old Testament. It's in between the books of Ezra and Esther. So go ahead and turn uh, to Nehemiah if you would. And while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you this little story. One day, a little girl was sitting and watching her mother do the dishes at the kitchen sink. She suddenly realizes that many of the white hairs that are in contrast to her mother's brunette head. The little girl looked at her mother and said, Mom, why are some of your hairs white? The mom replied, Every time you make me cry or do something wrong or do something bad, one of my hairs turns white. The little girl paused and thought about this sudden revelation for a while and said, So, Mom, how come all of Grandma's hairs are white? (laughs) I was going to take that story and kind of finagle in some of our own family's names and stuff in there, but I didn't, number one, I didn't figure I'd get a ride home. And number two, when I got home, there wouldn't be any lunch or dinner waiting for me, so... I want to do a couple things this morning as we look through the book of Nehemiah. um, Go ahead, Mark, put that first slide up there. I I, I didn't really have a title, but I have three things that I want to do. It's kind of like an ABC acronym. The first thing I want to do is make us aware, have some awareness come about of the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at some of the history of it, some of the background. Second thing we want to do this morning is to look at the building slash rebuilding process that Nehemiah went through. And the third thing, as all good Bible teaching should have, is practical application to our lives. How can we use this today to look at what we're going through in our lives today? So the C part of this is challenge. So awareness, build slash rebuild, and challenge. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So some of this awareness we're living in a time in America today where there's all kinds of division. There's political division, racial division, there's breakdown of families, breakdown of faith. There's like a redefinition of families that's trying to take place. And we learned um, in the couple weeks, first two weeks of June, about the father factor and the absence of fathers in society today. And the stats of what's happening in families when there is an absence of the father. We also learned the last two weeks about some of the basic foundational principles of our faith. We learned about the word. We learned about fasting, tithing, and prayer. But today I want to ask you a simple question. What state is your spiritual house in? On the graphic there you can see this kind of wall that's been built, and it looks like it's crumbling a little bit there in the middle. So I want us to take a couple minutes and look at our spiritual house. Is your spiritual house in a bad state? Is the foundation of it crumbling? Is it falling apart like our graphic here? Do you have a crumbling foundation? Maybe your spiritual house is in a good state. Maybe you're praying every day, you're fasting, you're in the Word, those things that we learned about the last couple weeks. If it is in a bad state, what are you doing about it? 
What do we do when there's no human solution for our problems? A little introduction on the book of Nehemiah. There's a lot of promises in the Bible before this in the Old Testament. And it's kind of like if-then statements. If God's people follow and trust Him, they will be okay. They will be given safety. God's chosen people will have eternal protection. God also promises that on the contrary, if God's people don't listen to Him, if they don't follow and trust, they will be taken from the land of captivity and there will be a consequence. It's kind of where we're going to pick up our story. Nehemiah was a, a captive to the Persians. The Persians had captured the Israelites. They went in and wiped out this wall, and we're going to learn all about the gates being burned and all this. God was punishing his people because they had disobeyed him. They were wandering away from his direction. They had no idea where they were headed. Most of the Israelites were living in Persia at this time, and only a few were left in the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was an influencer. Nehemiah lived in the palace of the king. He, was, he had a lot of power. He had a lot of influence over what he was doing. As Christians, we are called to be an influencer. We're called to be an influencer no matter where we are. No matter where we live, no matter what we do, we have this call to, to have influence on people. So Nehemiah's job, he was a cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer is not like a waiter at Applebee's. It's not like a server. A cupbearer was one of the highest held offices in the palace of the king. This cupbearer would test the food and test the drink. There wasn't an FDA back then. There wasn't a uh, food inspection inspector that would come in and test the meat and, and test everything. That was Nehemiah's job. He was one of the most trusted officials in the palace. He was a faithful servant to the king, and he had a very cushy job, none that he would want to put in any kind of jeopardy. So in chapter 1 here, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Nehemiah had everything he needed. He didn't have any wants, any needs. He was good to go. He didn't have a problem. It was the people in Jerusalem that had the problem. In verse 3, we're going to pick it up. The survivors who are left from captivity in the province, they are in great distress and reproach. Nehemiah's brother is the one that delivered this message to him. So he's telling him how bad it is. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. He didn't have any needs. He didn't have any wants. He had a good, cushy job. But he heard the news of his people that were in distress. So he started praying and fasting. He caught the vision of that destruction. He suddenly had a dislocated heart for the people and their needs. A lot of times our calling starts with a dislocated heart. I read this thing that said, if you don't want a heartbreak, you don't want a call. God will give you a tender heart toward what you are called to. I see some kind of younger people out here today. I just want to challenge you. If you want to serve God in your full potential, get a dislocated and broken heart. 
It starts with the heart. Nehemiah caught a Holy Spirit-inspired burden for God's people. The people live in Jerusalem. Those were Nehemiah's people. And he caught that Holy Spirit-inspired vision. As Christians, we need to learn to live with a heart for other people. So what can we learn about the calling that Nehemiah had? If God has a call on your life, follow the call. How do you know you have a call? Sometimes it's pretty simple. How do I know I'm called to be a mom? Well, did you get pregnant? Probably called to be a mom. Some of the callings are pretty simple. Some are a little more complex. Some take a little more diving in, digging in deep to it, praying, fasting through it. And when you get a call, don't follow needs. Needs are everywhere. Follow nudges. God will nudge you in your call. He will give you exactly what you need. God will call you to something that you are already tendered to. So that's a little about the calling. Now let's get back into a little bit about the wall. In verse 3, we learn that the survivors who are left there from captivity in the province are in great distress and reproach. We also learn about this wall for the first time. If, you've, if you know the story of Nehemiah, you know that the wall gets all the credit in the story. However, that's not the heart of the story. That's not the purpose. We'll get into that in a second. The importance of this wall, the wall around the city, it provided a perimeter of protection. It was like keeping all the enemies out and the friends in. Without the wall, it was like having no law enforcement, no police departments. Hello? Ring any bells? It provided protection. It provided that security. The wall provided a barrier to keep the city separated from the outside world. The wall provided safety and security. So this wall was destroyed by the Babylonians, and they tried for 72 years to rebuild this wall. Nehemiah rebuilt it in 52 days. How did he do that? Keep listening. You might be sitting here, maybe you already lost me. Maybe you're doing your, your bottle flips with your, your bottle. You're saying, why are we learning this? This is so boring. This is history. I don't, I don't need to know this. Yes, you do. You need to be aware of this for, the, for that it presents the next part of the story. History is his story. Amen? So we learn a lot about Nehemiah's character. We, we know that Nehemiah loved God's people. He had that broken heart. He had that dislocated heart. But he also loved the concept of prayer. He knew that he didn't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities of darkness. Nehemiah was mourning. He's fasting. He's in urgent prayer. I like to call it a frontline prayer. You have a maintenance prayer and a frontline prayer. A maintenance prayer is... God, we thank you for this food. Bless it to our bodies. Give us a good day. Amen. That's a maintenance prayer. Nehemiah wasn't praying a maintenance prayer. He was praying a frontline prayer. He was fasting, praying. He was being zealous about his prayer. Jump to verse 8. <clears throat> Nehemiah starts praying. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Remember the if-then statement that we talked about at the beginning. If 
we do what God says, he will protect us. But in verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them though you were cast out to the furthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. These verses talk about the people being unfaithful. The deeds that they did were wrong. And Nehemiah reminds God of his own words, the promise that he promised to Moses. He begins to intentionally fast and pray. He knows that there is no problem, no human fix to this problem, and he begins to seek the Lord on how to fix it. What can we learn about prayer here? It's great to get an answer to prayer but it's better to be an answer to prayer. It's always better to pray first and get the plan from God. If we make a plan and ask God to bless our plan, chances are it's probably not even lining up with what he's doing. It might not even have anything to do with what he wants to do. So it's always better to ask God for the plan first. It's kind of like a honeydew list. You get that list from the wife and she's like, do this, do this, do this. So you read through it. If you just turn around and go start doing the list, guess what? Probably not going to be the way she wants it done. So you need to meet with her, sit down, and talk through it together. Same thing with God. Ask him how he wants the plan carried out. Happy wife, happy life. Speaking of that, just a real quick side note. Um, where is Scott and Anne? Right there. Okay. I was told today, is this your 51st anniversary today? Let's give them a hand. 51 years. Yeah. How many honeydew lists have you got? A couple? Okay. Did you talk to her about them? <laughs> he doesn't have to read. He just has to talk to you about it and make sure that you two are on the same page. So if we go to prayer and we understand God's plan for our life, it'll work out a whole lot better. We also can learn a couple more things about prayer. We can learn to lift up our voice, right? We talked about the maintenance prayer versus the frontline prayer. To be passionate about our prayers. To be urgent in our prayers. Be purposeful in our prayers. We don't just pray things like, God, zap them. God, get them. God, change them. Pray for opportunities. Like Nehemiah was presented with this opportunity. It wasn't his problem. I think we need to do that as Christians. Pray for opportunities to share our faith with others. In verse 11, he's praying for favor as he goes and talks to the king. He says, let your servant prosper this day. I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, we know Nehemiah was a captive in the palace. He's a, he grew up in the palace. He had the most highest job, but he still felt the need to come to the Lord and ask for favor before he went and talked to the king. He's going to go ask the king, hey, man, I need to go back to my people, and I need to help them because God has laid it on my heart. He's dislocated my heart, broken my heart for the people. Nehemiah's prayer life focuses around the faithfulness of God 
He recognizes God's faithfulness and promise, and he asks God for that favor. This is just really bizarre to me. And I want to say this analogy. Don't, don't run with any of this weird ideas. Let's just pick on, I don't know, Haiti. Haiti was in the news a lot this week, right? Let's just say that somebody from Haiti grows up in the White House. And for whatever reason, the U.S. Air Force goes and wipes out Haiti, the country of Haiti. It's not going to happen. But that person goes to the President of the United States that grew up in the White House and says, hey, man, I'm from Haiti. I need to go back there and rebuild this thing. The President's like, what? Why? It seems bizarre, but comparatively speaking, that's exactly what Nehemiah was doing. He was the one in the White House asking the president for the favor to return to his home country and rebuild the wall. So let's talk a little bit about this building slash rebuilding process. We went through the history. We're kind of aware. We're on the same page of what the goal was of Nehemiah, how he had this heart for the people. But he had this opportunity. He knows what's ahead. He didn't look for problems. He had enough people telling him there's problems out there. Nehemiah was looking for the solutions. He knew that this problem had no human solution, and then he needed God's help. I believe this part of the story is a turning point. The people in Jerusalem, like I said, they had tried to rebuild this wall for 72 years. For whatever reason, they couldn't do it. But I think this was a turning point for them. Three things I dug out of this. They had someone know that they had been in trouble. Someone acknowledged that they had a problem, that the walls were gone, their protection was gone. Second thing was to know that someone cared enough to see their need. And the third thing was to have someone that wanted to help rebuild their dwelling. Their home was about to be restored and protected again. We better move on to chapter 2, or we're not going to make it through this by 3 o'clock. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 2. So he comes to the king. He's asking for favor to go read the, rebuild the wall. In verse 10, the officials are already skeptical of Nehemiah and his plan. He shows up on the scene. Try to get these names right. So Sanballat, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Remember, the, the people, they're glad. They're glad that somebody's finally there to help them. But there's these officials on the other side going, I don't know. What's this guy doing here? I don't think I like him. They're also mentioned later in the chapter. We'll get to that in a second. I think this is a huge turning point for the children of Israel to see they had somebody that cared. So Nehemiah, he's got people talking in this year. He's got people talking in this year. This year is good. Yeah, you're going to help us. This year is all the oppression, all the opposition of why he can't do what he's going to do. So Nehemiah goes out at night and he assesses the wall. Now this wall is no joke. The studies I did show that it's two and a half miles around the city. It's 30 to 40 feet high, and it's eight feet thick. 
This isn't like the fence you put in your yard to keep your neighbor's dog business on his side of the fence. This is a huge wall, huge wall. Any contractors in here? You want to build a eight-foot thick wall, 40 feet high, Kurt? Okay. So he assesses the damage. I mean, it's bad. Walls are broken. Gates are burned down. There's mass destruction everywhere. The protection was gone. They were vulnerable to all attacks of their enemies. The construction that had been made to keep evil out was gone. Totally gone. In fact, they started to barter with neighboring countries, neighboring towns for their uh, money and whatnot. It was just a mess. It was awful. Nehemiah knew that an action plan had to be made and the action needed to be taken. So on the graphic here, it says strategy and planning. This wasn't just done haphazardly. It was done in an orderly fashion. So Nehemiah presents his plan. Jump to verse 18. Verse 18, he stands before the, the people. He says, let's rise up and build. They're all in agreement. So they set their hand to this good work. They're all in it, right? We're going to do this thing. We got this. We're going for it. But. It's always a but, isn't there? You think you're doing something good. You think you're moving in the right direction. And then the opposition comes. So our buddies, Sanballat and Tobiah, they get a third guy with them this time. In verse 19, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gresham, They laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Now we know Nehemiah was not rebelling against the king. He had gone to the king and asked for the favor. He had gone to the king and asked for the permission, the blessing to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. But he's coming against this opposition, these three guys, these officials. They keep rattling in his ear. Hey, you can't do it that way. You can't do it this way. What are you even doing here? I love Nehemiah's response, verse 20. Throw it up there, Mark. So Nehemiah, he he stays calm. He's like, man, we're good. You guys are just in our way. Get out of our way. We're going to keep doing our thing. So I answered to them. This is Nehemiah talking. The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. What? God himself will prosper us. It's like a promise. There's over 8,000 promises in the Bible, 8,810, I think. So take this one away. We still have 8,809 to go. But God himself will prosper us. This isn't like maybe God will prosper us. When he gets around to it. Hundred years ago, he prospered our forefathers. A thousand years ago, he helped our ancestors. No, this is right now. Now, God is going to help us. He will prosper us. So, this rebuilding, it took 52 days. I know I said that before, but it's kind of like a record, it's like a world record. All right, Kurt, I'm going to give you 52 days to build this wall, but there's a catch. You can't use any excavators, any bulldozers, any cranes, any power equipment. It's all on human back power. You want to do it? No. 
The Bible uses a whole chapter to list the significance of the names of each of the families that helped build the wall. The strategy and the planning. There wasn't just this haphazard plan. There was an order. There was an execution of the plan. This family repaired in front of their house. Then this family repaired in front of their house. Some of the damage was worse than others, so there was helping involved. If you got your part done, you go over here and help this family. Everyone made repairs in front of their own house. It wasn't like a contracted job. There wasn't, hey, let's call, you know, so-and-so excavating down the road, have them come rebuild. This was everybody doing their part in the city. Everyone dealt with their own issues to accomplish a greater task of defending the city. So we're all good. We get the wall up. Everything's good. Great to go. When the wall was up, it defended against enemies. It was restored to its original condition. It was doing its purpose once again. However, this is not the goal. What was the goal? What's the heart of this whole entire book? It's worship. Without the protection around the city, without that security in place, they didn't have a place where they could worship Jehovah. They didn't have a place where they could worship Almighty God. The whole idea of the book is worship, not walls. The walls get all the credit, all the fame. That's where you hear all the messages about the walls. But it's not. It's about worship. Let's look at chapter 7. I, I don't have this one in there. Chapter 7, the first verse and the last verse, it's 73 verses of it, but the first verse and the last verse focus on worship. Then it was that the wall was being built. I hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites, the priests, everybody was appointed. They're all in unity again to worship God. And the last verse says the same thing. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people... The Nentium and all of Israel dwelt in their cities. They were good to go. Chapter 8 is the whole heart of the book. Everything that they had been working for towards the goal of rebuilding and worshiping again had come to be. So Nehemiah takes Ezra, who is in the previous book. We're not going to hit that today. But he calls on Ezra and he says, Ezra, come read the law of Moses. And they worship Almighty God. Singers are singing praise. The priests are ministering to the Lord. Then the Feast of Tabernacles take place. It's like a glorious time. In chapter 8, verse 9b, it says this, The day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept. They heard the words of the law. Move on to chapter 9. People start confessing their sins. Excuse me. It's like a holy revival broke out. There was true worship going on. There was confessing of sins going on. But I believe that there was true change being taken place. They didn't just say, yeah, we're going to change. They actually did change. Real change took place. The people made a new covenant with God. With God. They made new commitments. They actually started writing down their covenants. 
And they were accountable to each other with those new commitments that they had made. They made God in charge of their time. They made God in charge of their money, their work life, their first fruits, their tithes, their businesses, relationships, everything revolving their life, they made God the head of. I want to ask this question. Are the practices of my life going to show the priorities that I have set in place? In other words, we can come here on a Sunday, we can stand in worship, we can listen to the Word, we can say that we're changed, but are the priorities of our life going to show what we have set in place? Are the practices of our life going to show what we've set in place as Christians? Are we in the Word? Are we praying? Are we fasting? Is our spiritual house in a condition that is honorable to God? Is our heart in the right place? Are our eyes and ear gates focused on pure things? I want to take the next couple minutes and just talk about some challenges. If you want to come up and play a little bit. Like I said, I believe all biblical teaching, all solid plan should have some kind of action plan behind it. Some kind of practical thing that we can take away. So if you would just stand with me this morning. When we stand, it gives us an opportunity to hear things in a different light, but it also gives us that first step. And if you feel something this morning in one of these challenges that challenges you to come pray, this altar is always open. There's people here that will pray with you. I believe these challenges are for us as a body. And where do you fit into the story today? I believe there are many Nehemiahs in this room. I believe there are many leaders that God has put in place. Whether it's in your business, your family, wherever the place is that you are that God has called you to. Remember that analogy we used about the dislocated heart. If God's calling you to something, He will give you a tender heart towards it. I believe there's many here today that know they have that specific call from God, but you just need to take a step towards it. Don't be afraid. Remember that statement, if you don't want a heartbreak, you don't want a call. First challenge, I want you to say this with me. Repeat after me. When God is behind it, it's a holy work. I'll say it again. When God is behind it, it's a holy work. Maybe you could relate to this first challenge. Maybe your walls of protection in your spiritual house lay in ruins today. Maybe you have some holes in the security of your life. Good news. 
Jesus wants to be the restorer. He wants to be the refinisher. Psalms 23.3 says this, He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. Jesus wants to be your restorer. He wants to be your protector, your provider, your leader, and your shepherd. He wants to restore your spiritual house today. Second place where you might fit in. Maybe you don't have any walls at all. Maybe you've never had any kind of security, no place of sanctity in your life. More good news. Actually, it's the best news. Jesus wants to be that place of security today. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus died for you. He wants to have a real relationship with you today. No matter where you're at, no matter what you've done in your life, nothing is too bad for Jesus to come in and restore your life. He wants to help you build a spiritual house. Maybe you don't fit into either of those two categories. Maybe you fit into the third one. Third one is, are you building the correct walls? You're like, what? This guy's talking about building walls of sanctity, security. Yeah, but let's make sure we're building the right walls. Let's build walls that realign our life and our spirit to what we are called to. We don't want to build walls of offense, anger, resentment, disapproval, disappointment. Those are walls made of bitterness. You know what bitterness produces? Bad fruit. You can't make a good pie with good with bad fruit. Bad fruit makes a bad pie like a cow pie. We don't want cow pies. We want good things. Proverbs 15.4 says this, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. No bad fruit. No bad pies. No cow pies. We want good fruit. We want uplifting things. Encouragement. Build walls that realign your life and your spirit to what God has for you. Maybe you fit into this challenge. Number four. Opposition. Remember our buddies Sanballat and Tobiah and Gresham? They were the opposition. Opposition can be a point of discouragement or it can be a point of refocus and recommitment yourself to the Lord. Just because you're coming against opposition doesn't mean it's the wrong thing. How did the father of lies get that nickname? How did the devil get that nickname, Father of Lies? He's been lying. He's going to lie to you. When you're making headway, when you're making progress in your call, the enemy's going to come against you. Just want to encourage you, if you're coming against opposition, stay committed to the call. Take all those slanders, all those disappointments, those threats, those intimidations, just get rid of them. If God's behind it, it's a holy work. One more time. If God's behind it, it's a amen. <clears throat> the root of the opposition is not mocking and ridicule. The root of the opposition is that people are truly 
coming to a place where they're worshiping God. The enemy hates Christians who are truly worshiping and praising. God wants people who are faithful-hearted, people who are all in. Are you all in today? Here's the last challenge. Maybe nothing I said resonated with you about building walls, getting new walls, building the wrong walls, getting opposition. Maybe you're all good today. Maybe you have a spiritual house that's healthy. Maybe you have a good prayer life. You're in the Word every day. You're communicating with God. You're asking Him, what's next for my life? Here's my challenge for you. That's awesome. That's great. Celebrate. That's your challenge. God is about celebrating and fun. God gave us two things that I know why He loves us. Chocolate and peanut butter. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy unto our lot. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you have that assurance today, if you have that, if everything's good in your spiritual house, celebrate celebrate I'm going to pray with us today again the altar's open if you have anything here you want some more prayer about anything you want to talk about with Jesus the altar is open God I thank you for our time together thank you for the time we can study your word thank you for the biblical truths that we can pull from it God, I seal up everything that was said today, everything that was spoken and sung. God, we just commit this house to you. We commit this house as a house of worship, as a house of praise. But God, we also commit ourselves to you, our hearts, our souls, our spiritual house. God, if there's anything unpleasing in our lives, that you would come and cleanse us. God, if there's anything in our life that we need rebuilt, that you would come rebuild that today. God, I pray a blessing over each one of us as we go out this week. We come against opposition. God, that you would be right there in in our ears, in our hearts, just giving us encouragement, God. You are the Lord of this place. You are the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be blessed. Have a great week. See y'all.